Let us pray. Most gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may your word to us be living water. May your word satiate our souls and draw us into the stream of your way of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of this fall, we have been in the book of Jeremiah. The last two Sundays, we took a brief break. We had some special things going on, but we are back. And for three weeks here in November, we will finish out our time in the book of Jeremiah. Today, the reading is a brief reading from Jeremiah, and in many ways, the sermon will focus on the New Testament reading and the way that it it draws from Jeremiah to find a lot of its power and illumination. We hear the prophet Jeremiah speaking in chapter 17, verses 12 through 14. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I read from John chapter 8, a a little background will be essential for this this passage. The festival of booths, or the festivals of tabernacles, or the feast of tabernacles, is this festival, this feast with deep biblical roots. To this day, it is celebrated in late September and early October. It's one of the seven major feasts of the Hebrew calendar, and it's the very last one every single year. It's a joyous occasion, goes on for eight days. And if you look at John chapter 7, we find that this festival is the setting for Jesus' ministry from chapter 7 through chapter 9. So that includes John chapter 8, which will be our New Testament reading today. And Jesus, in this setting, festival of tabernacles, would be in Jerusalem... There'd be Jewish pilgrims from all over coming for this feast. And one of the main themes of this feast, every time it's celebrated, is water. There is eager hope that following this fall feast, God will provide the winter rains so that there is actually a springtime harvest. There is food. There's life. During the first seven days of this festival, there would be teachings by the rabbis on the significance of water. There would be readings from Hebrew scriptures that highlight the theme of water and its significance. There would be this elaborate point during the week in a particular ceremony where a container of water is lavishly poured over these sacrifices being offered to God. Water would be running down and all over the place this expansive visual of, of, that speaks of God's generosity, their hope for God's continued faithful generosity with regard to water. And then throughout this festival of the tabernacles, there were prayers, prayers for rain. And in particular, they prayed that it might start raining on the eighth day of the festival. Because after seven days of celebrating the festival, according to the stipulations of Leviticus 23, the eighth day was meant to be a day of rest, and it marked the transition into the next season, into the new day, into the first day of winter. A day on which finally the rains could burst forth, and they'd have a harvest. (laughs) For if they don't, people may die. They are utterly, we are utterly dependent on the rain. 
And into this festival of celebration, into this festival of aching prayer for water, for rain, comes Jesus. And you get this famous line towards the end of John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, the eighth day, the day when they hoped the rains might really let loose, the first day of the new season, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who thirsts, let that person come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of that person's heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus moves the conversation to the soul and implies that among his hearers are people who are already so very parched. Dry soil, hardened soil, cracked soil, bitter soil, tired soil. And he strongly declares, he is the rain. The difference between life and death. And then the very next passage after this profound eighth-day declaration, we turn into John chapter 8. It is today's gospel reading. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have some basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older first, older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I imagine that some of you are aware after these recent rains that we've had in Richmond, some of that water has actually made it into a couple spots in this sanctuary. Most recently, right over in the area where Charles Sutton usually sits. And I know this as apparently Cal Gray went over to that spot last week with a big old towel to kind of wipe up all the water. And Charles goes, oh good, now they won't think it's me. (laughs) Charles has the best sense of humor. I imagine, though, some of you have had a leak here or there in your home and maybe under these recent rains. Because isn't that always the way of it with our homes, our churches? I mean, we do our best to route the water this way and not that way. To have it collect over here and not over here. To have it flow that direction, not this direction. But give it time. Give it a few months or a few years or a few decades. Give it time and water always finds a way. Water just has a way of finding a way. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus in John chapter 8, looking to corner living water, box him in, trap him. Our experience with water tips us off as to how this is all going to end. 
The particular way they intend to trap and corner this water is by bringing a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery and making her stand before the temple. And they say, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Law of Moses commands us to stone her. What what say you? And the trap is this. If he says stone her, as per the law, Jesus will be in trouble with the Roman authorities because at this point, only Roman authorities had the authority of, of the death penalty. The Jewish authorities could not do that. No, Roman law was the final one on death penalties. You could not do that. But if Jesus says, let her go, he very much risks being discredited as a teacher of the law. He's seen as someone who doesn't care at all about morality. Of course, Jesus knows there's something wrong about this whole situation from the get-go, and it's not only the act of adultery. Jesus knows the law as well. Jesus knows under the very law that they're quoting from in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says in the case of adultery, both the woman and the man must be put to death. And so it's obvious that these religious leaders who who must have known who the man was, because as it said, this woman was caught, caught, quote, in the act of adultery. So where where is he? Why is this so unfairly one-sided? What is this really about? Well, the religious leaders are probably feeling good about the trap they have laid. They stand among the gathering as those respected, in charge, in control, and they're moments away from having just that much more control. They finally cornered this troublesome water. And then verse 7. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground of the dust. We sometimes wonder endlessly about this moment, but the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. After all, they had just finished an eight-day festival talking about, teaching about, and praying about water. And among the scriptures that would have been read at the Festival of Tabernacles was Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, today's Old Testament scripture reading. And you heard, there is a ver- that verse has a line about dust. What you have on the ground When you don't have water. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, proclaims Jeremiah, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. This is a scripture fresh in the people's minds from that festival. And here Jesus is writing in the dust. He doesn't need to say a single word and he can draw everyone there to remember what they've just heard proclaimed for eight days. And while we can't be sure Jesus is writing the names of the scribes and Pharisees in the dust, his dust writing makes it clear that he is naming these religious leaders as insubstantial, as empty as having one's name written in the dust. It's here for a moment and then swept away. Perhaps all the more scathing, Jesus' allusion to Jeremiah 17, 13 declares that these very men who have spent the whole week teaching on water and the need for water and living water, these very teachers are the ones whose souls are dry as dust. Then Jesus goads them, right, with that famous line, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. By which scholars agree what is meant here is those without sin with regard to this matter. Not those without any sin ever for all time. Those without sin in regard to this matter throw the first stone. 
And Jesus knows the law required that the the first two or more witnesses who would have seen an act like this uh, would be the ones required to throw the stone against the, the guilty party. And these witnesses could not be guilty in this matter, not guilty of adultery, nor guilty of mishandling this case in, in, in any way. They had to be innocent of this particular issue. So in essence, Jesus is asking them, you witnesses, are you guiltless before God in the matter of adultery? Is there adultery in your heart? Or, or if not, is there guile or deceitfulness in the reason you are bringing this woman before me? And not the man as well. Are your motives to bring about justice in this case? To maybe save a marriage? Or or is there something else going on in your hearts? Drip. 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 Water cannot be contained. It always finds a way. But of course, we're asking ourselves, okay, if Jesus has has broken through this trap, they said, where exactly is living water flowing at this moment? Notice what Jesus does right after he says those famous words about casting the first stone. He returns to write in the dust. What you have is living water pressing into the very dust that declares the parched condition of these religious leaders. The water is pressing on the dust. That maybe the dust might receive it. Sometimes living water lands upon the heart first in the form of conviction. The fact that these religious leaders, you heard first the older men and then the younger, the fact that they all walk away from Jesus is a sign that they have been convicted. They they are not innocent. Water has pressed into dust. It's a bit like when, when some of us get going with, with the day and we're going, we're doing this and we're doing that and go, go, go and we find ourselves short with people and irritated and tired and anxious and then we stop and we take a huge gulp of water and think, my gosh, I had no idea how thirsty I was. Sometimes water presses into the dust and makes it clear just how dry and brittle things have been. Sometimes when we have that moment of conviction or we see our part in the blame or we start to see our failing personally or corporately or we start to see that that other person actually does have a point or those other people, they have spoken a truth we have missed. As painful as it is, how often that is a moment in which living water has fallen on our souls and is pressing us to awaken to this need. You see, in the motion of Jesus' finger in the dust, he both condemns the dryness and he presses with water. It's not clear, of course, will the men continue to receive this water and drink from it or not? What about the woman? Living water flows in her direction too. Jesus certainly does not condone her sin, but he definitely pours living water on her. She does not begin the scene, right, like the religious leaders. Sure, confident, in control, no leaks. Oppositely, she knows she is quite parched. She knows that she very well may have had her last drops of water on this earth, her death close. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Now, some might wish Jesus had said those words after she had confessed or at least apologized or promised to not do it again. But what we have is a narrative version of, of that wonderful verse from Romans. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While this woman was yet totally in her failure and failing, Jesus releases her of the threat and the shame. He forgives and he frees and he exhorts her in the way of living water. Go and sin no more. Now, will she change? I mean, does the water of forgiveness taste so good to a parched soul that they just cannot drink from any other fount? We're not told what she does. The only thing we're certain of in this passage is that living water refuses to be boxed in, cornered, trapped, or contained. It was poured out upon the religious leader like a cold shower of conviction. It was poured out upon the woman like a warm washcloth tending To a wound. But we simply don't know if any from this story continue to drink from the fount of living water that has burst their way in this eighth day reality after the festival of tabernacles. But in some ways, right, that's that's not the real question. The real question is what will we do? Because eventually that living water was put to death and entombed. Because surely the dryness of death trapped behind rocks means you've got no more water. It's contained. And yet the thing we name as as the most foundational aspect of our faith is that three days later the living water rose and poured forth from the grave. Water lavishly poured across every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus inaugurated what the New Testament calls the new creation, right? There were seven days in the original Genesis creation story. The New Testament understands that we now live all of our days in the eighth day of creation, the day of new creation in which living water has burst forth and has refused to be bound and only ever continually flows. You see, we need not wait for some special day, special festival, special place. We live, we move, we have our being on the eighth day where the rains have broken forth and nothing binds them. It's always raining. And so as I think about our roof leaks with you, I'm not excited that We continually have to figure out how to fix and address them. But part of me smiles and thinks, well, how true. The water is always flowing. It always finds a way. Where is the water breaking in your life this day, in our lives this day? Perhaps some of us, we have done our very best to route the water into this area of our life so that Jesus touches nothing about the way we act or go about our work or our money or our politics. Jesus here, these things here. Or, or maybe we've, we've, we've tried to box Jesus into this ideal theological or denominational system. Or maybe just generally we have done our darndest to get a hold of our lives, get some control over it, have things going just like we need it, just like we prefer it. And then something gives. Something breaks. Something perhaps even starts to convict us and it hurts. And we worry we need to patch that hole. We need to fix this growing mess that just started 
Have we ever considered if that might be living water breaking through to a parched soul, a parched people? What if the whole is good news? What if writing in the dust is the first step towards getting on board with the stream of life? Or, some here, we may assume Jesus wants nothing to do with us because Jesus is good. Jesus stays over in a corner with good or generally good people, not people with our past, not people with our continued hypocrisy, not people with some of our shames. Some of us are a mess and and we kind of know it and know what we deserve and and know what we've done and what, what honestly we haven't done. But then someone comes along and offers us a word of support, a word of encouragement. They notice something. They offer a listening ear without judgment. They offer a kindness undeserved. Drip, drip, drip. The good news of Jesus Christ is that it's the eighth day and the roof eventually always leaks on the supposedly good and the supposedly bad. The question for us today as individuals, as a church, as a city is, where is the living water breaking forth? Where is there a growing stream and God is calling us to get caught up in that flow, go in that direction, drink from that water and stop making boxes, drink deeply from there that we might not only be satiated, might not only be in the flow of where God is leading us, but we might also, in the words of Jesus, find that out of our hearts flow rivers of living water. Amen.